Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream is a total chocolate game changer. We start with unbelievably creamy dark chocolate ice cream. Then we add different chocolate treats, like chocolate cookies, chocolate cake, or chocolate brownies to make four decadent chocolate flavors. Because sometimes the thing that pairs best with chocolate <laughs> is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary Dairy. Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The year is 1969, and Joe Buck is rated X for excellent. The movie? Midnight Cowboy. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear, and this is the podcast where each week we watch one film from the AFI's 100 Greatest Films of All Timeless 2007 edition to see if they really are as good as people say. Do they hold up? And how have they influenced the films that we watch today? Uh, later in the episode, we'll be talking about Midnight Cowboy. But first, let's go back to last week's episode where Amy and I did our first ever live episode about what horror films belong on the AFI list. This was such a fun episode. Mm -hmm. We were joined by Phil Nobile Jr., the new editor of Fangoria, and also Sam Zerman of Shudder, two brilliant, brilliant horror people. They put forth two films. Sam recommended putting Blair Witch into the AFI Top 100 and pretty much sold me. Uh, Phil Nobile recommended Get Out. I recommended Night of the Living Dead. You recommended Scream. Yes. It was such an interesting conversation. Well, you know, I think we all tried to pick different types of horror films that should go on that list. And, you know, I think we left off a lot. And it just goes to show you how uh, passionate people are about their horror films. You know, The Thing is a film that I really, really love so, so much. And people talk about The Shining. You know, so many films to really get in there. And there's so many reasons why they should be on this list. I want to also just take a moment to shout out Phil. Uh, you know, as he's running Fangoria right now, there's a great uh, piece in Fangoria. It's Paul Thomas Anderson interviewing um, Jordan Peele about us. It's a great read. I, uh, I got a copy when I was down there and I just love that article. So if you want to kind of read about two filmmakers talking about process, and again, Paul Thomas Anderson in Fangoria is a really fun kind of mix. Yeah, Phil is really killing it with what that magazine is. Yeah. And I think he's killing it because we're living in an era where we realize horror is serious business. It deserves Absolutely. serious conversations. Well, you know, talking about this idea uh, and about how the list is changing, uh, Susan Cat wrote something that actually jumped out to me. She goes, I think when we think about this list, you know, many of these films are groundbreaking. You know, they're the first to do something, but they're not necessarily the best. 
you know, maybe we want to preserve a list of firsts, but have a separate one for the best. What do you think about mm. that? What if something is first and best? There's a lot of films here that I would put on the first list. Um, you know, we could talk about a movie like Bonnie and Clyde. That was a movie that I felt like, yes, because where we've gone, um, it doesn't hold as much weight for me, but it should belong on a list as one of the first. And and I think, you know, sometimes the first you never can be topped. And other times the first just leads the way for other people to follow in their footsteps. Yeah. I mean, you know. I mean, I do want to break the tyranny of the first. Mm-hmm. You know, because this first always have to be like, okay, we must honor you obligatorily. Yeah. You know? But anyways, that said, um, from Facebook, Jeffrey Simons wrote, you know, Blair Witch terrified me more than pretty much everything because they saw it. Jeffrey saw it in Baltimore, lived near a wooded area, and did not sleep for three days. And said that sometimes I think an actual theater setting can enhance slash degrade a viewer's experience of a film. Which I, I wonder if, like, Jeffrey means, like, if he watched it with his TV facing the woods, would it be better or worse? <laughs> you know, I think you're totally right. I think the idea of a drive-in creates a different expectation for a film. I think when you see a film in a big crowd on opening night, you you feel an energy that's not often there. I always say there's a thing called premieritis um, where you are – you know, at a premiere of a film and everyone loves it. And then you go home or you see the reaction to that film weeks later and people just don't like it. it it's, you know, I think there is an energy in a theater. And I think that's the the one sad thing about people watching more stuff at home is you lose that kind of connection to your brethren. I think a lot of people felt that in A Quiet Place, you know, just that silence of the theater. It's so important in a, in a movie going experience. Chris Otto um, at Paper Great. Uh, they pointed out that actually like, they would nominate The Haunting, they would nominate Halloween, Bride of Frankenstein, and that they said they love how actually in horror women get so many cool lead roles. And they also pointed out mm. The Others, Carnival of Souls, two other great horror films that they would also submit for consideration. I'd add to that The Exorcist. Amazing lead oh, roles in that movie. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, Amy, let's open this discussion a little bit more. We already heard from people in our crowd what they wanted to see on the list, but now let's hear what you wanted to see on the list. This is uh, what you called and told us uh, you wanted to see on the AFI horror list. I think Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer should be on the AFI Top 100 list. Yeah, I think Insidious should be um, in the top uh, top list of movies because everything about that movie, the camera work, the characters, the way they deal with loss, and then it turns into this kind of sweeping drama, and it really is much better than people give it credit for it. I think the best horror film that should definitely be included on the list would be Frankenstein from 1931. Uh, it's kind of that old universal horror movie. This one has a lot of substance and was on the original Top 100 list. I know that a bunch of people are going to list the artsier horror movies. I think the Texas Chainsaw Massacre should be considered for this list. It is just such an important movie and is really a lot smarter than anyone gives it credit for. I know it's recent, but Hereditary, no movie has ever scared me, stayed with me, and made me think about the impact of family in my own life the way that movie has. Ooh, those are really interesting movies. None that I would have picked. I would have picked Texas Chainsaw, I think. Oh, I mean, yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a good one. But I, I wonder, is it too unrefined? 
Um, I'm unrefined, Paul. <laughs> you just love a <laughs> Texas movie. All right, Amy, um, we're about to talk about Midnight Cowboy. It's a movie that I had not really seen before today, and I wrote down what I thought it was about before I watched it, and I'm just going to simply uh, read it to you now. Oh, I'm ready. Show me, show me, show me, show me. It is this. An actor turns prostitute, and Dustin Hoffman becomes his pimp. That's what I thought it was about. That's actually close-ish. Close-ish. Close, I mean, the, well, there's a big difference. He, he's never an actor. But uh, he's, he's acting. It's performative. All right. Thank you. All right. Well, Amy, let's get into it. The year, 1969. The Beatles give their last public performance. Boeing debuts at 747 Jumbo Jet. The Manson family murders Sharon Tate and the LaBiancas. PBS is established, and Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin are the first humans to walk on the moon. The record of the year is Mrs. Robinson by Simon and Garfunkel. The FCC bans all cigarette ads on television and radio. Woodstock, the Stonewall Riot, Apollo 11, and the inauguration of Nixon fill the headlines. The big movies of the year are Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, Easy Rider, Hello Dolly, and today's film, Midnight Cowboy. Rated 43 on the 2007 AFI list, down from its 1997 listing of number 36. Amy, who's in it? What's it about? Midnight Cowboy. It is directed by John Schlesinger. It is written by Waldo Salt, based on the novel by James Leo Hurley. And it stars John Voight as Joe Buck, a wannabe hustler from Texas who moves to Manhattan to try to pick up rich women. Befriends-ish, befrenemies-ish, Dustin Hoffman, playing a local named Enrico Salvatore Razzo Rizzo. And the two of them basically ruin their lives in New York and get poorer and poorer and poorer and poorer and poorer. And it's a heartwarming fable for everybody. (laughs) Uh, Some major fun facts about Midnight Cowboy. It is the first X-rated film to ever win Best Picture. Uh, And it's very modern. It's very, this is a very modern looking film. You know, it's a crazy cut, strange fisheye lenses going from color to black and white. It's everything. It's bright. It's colorful. It's everything. It's it's everything. I'm just going to say everything a bunch. No, I, I totally agree with you. There's something about this movie that immediately pulls me in and also kind of pushes me away, and I've been wrestling with it since I've watched the movie. I I really like this movie, and the more I sit with it, the more I think about it and how it kind of has influenced so many different things. I mean, you could say there are elements of Requiem for a Dream in here, and there are elements of Dumb and Dumber in here. Like, I mean, you know, there are things that are so quintessential buddy movie, and then there are things that are so gritty and real and dark uh, that you can see its influences on on cinema in so many ways. I mean, what do you think about this film? I really love this film. Yeah. Honestly, I really love this film. And, and one of the things I think we're going to talk about this episode is, you know, we point to 1969, to the films of this year as being this groundbreaking moment. You know, behold the 60s. Behold what the 70s are going to become, you know. And of this whole clan of films, I think Midnight Cowboy might be my favorite. Really? It really might. And I know I go hard on the 70s and I go hard on this period. Right. And maybe there's a world where I would like, scrap all of it. Keep Midnight Cowboy only because I think this movie is just so fantastic. But now I'm getting ahead of myself. Now I'm going to wind up in a gutter somewhere. I agree with you. The style of this film is incredibly unique and it does things that I think a lot of films don't do well at all. And the two things I really want to talk about out of the gate is the use of flashback. It's something that is very poo-pooed by screenwriters. But... It's done so elegantly here. And you, as the viewer, are kind of 
not given all the details. You have to kind of piece things together. And I love the way that they come in with the flashback. It's not overly heavy-handed. It is like a memory. And it and it feels like you're seeing these flashes. It's not expository, which I think a lot of flashbacks are. I, I was blown away by that. And then the other thing that I was so impressed by was the drug sequence, um, which is a, a thing that I feel like film tries to capture so much and you never quite nail it. And these two things, just on the basis of that, I was like, wow, this movie does something that is often imitated and never achieved to this level. Um, what do you feel about flashbacks? Do you have a general theory about flashbacks? You know, it's interesting. I mean, Waldo Salt's daughter, Jennifer Salt, mm -hmm. who I believe was maybe even dating John Voight while the movie was being Ooh, made. Yeah. Um, she had this thing that she called it, where she said it was like a flash present, where instead of a moment where the film grinds to a halt and says, hey, you, the audience, I want to just show you something that happened in the past, right. that her dad really tried to ground it into, this is what the character is thinking about right now. Like you're inside his head yeah. deeply. And that... In the style of it, you see that the present, the past, the current, like fantasies of things that have happened, things that did happen, things that might happen are all kind of blended together. You know, it's these hallucinatory sequences where you feel like John Voight's Joe Buck is literally losing his mind. Actually, now that I think about it, I think Jennifer Salt is in these because I think that Jennifer Salt is the person who plays his girlfriend in the past, Texas. Oh, wow. In, in Texas, Annie. It's a rough and, role to cast your daughter in. Yeah, there's a yikes. Well, Aldo Salt's an interesting guy. He's one of those dudes who was blacklisted um, right. during the 1950s, during the whole communist scare, and this was really his film back, which is kind of interesting. I mean, this is a turning point film in so many ways of the introduction of the new. But you have a screenwriter who's pretty old with a grown daughter and a director who was, you know, fairly old himself. John Sleisinger, I think, was in his 40s, mid-40s when he made this film. But it feels young because yeah. they're trying new things. I do think one of the reasons why this film feels young is because this director is taking chances. It really is pushing the boundaries. And I think you could see that parallel in his life because during the making of the film, he comes out. And it was something he was afraid of doing. The film's producer basically said, look, you're the director. It's your movie. You know, I'm the producer. I'm your partner. But you come out, I at your back, and if someone speaks out of line, they'll be fired in the same minute. And they gave him this freedom. And I think this freedom to, and maybe I'm reading into it and whatever, this freedom to kind of express his own ideas and to make these bold choices. And he's doing it in his personal life, and he's doing it in his uh, professional life. And I think that's a young attitude. That's an attitude that we kind of forget about. As we get older, we make safer choices. So here's a guy, yes, he's in his 40s, but he is making the choices of a young man professionally and personally. No, I think you're exactly right. I mean, he does come out. He falls in love with a guy named Michael Childers making this film who is half his age and really fun and artistic and creative and a guy who was like, yeah, let's go to dance parties. Let's go to drag shows. Let's go see the world. I mean, John Schlesinger, for people who don't know, is British. He has like a documentary film background and now he's in America. Now he's like meeting Andy Warhol through people like Michael Childers, who I think really does have this huge influence on this film. You know, they wound up being together for three decades. They're deeply in love. And it was Michael Childers, Childers who was like, I know Andy Warhol. Let's get his friends in the movie. I can yeah. connect y'all to all of this. It was Michael Childers who even comes up, I believe, with the introduction to the movie because they could not figure out how to start Midnight Cowboy. They're like, where do we go? Because the book, you know, spends a, the first third of the book with Joe Buck in Texas, blah, blah, blah. Well, he goes to a whorehouse, right, in the book for a, a, a good period of it before he goes to New York. 
Um, and that's where he has this experience there where he uh, is raped and he's kind of beaten down by the the whorehouse owner and her son. And it's a very dark uh, kind of opening. So they kind of just took that section out and they started with the idea of him moving to the city and then uh, and then making that the kind of full thrust of the film. I do like the open, 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 opening part of this movie where you have this character of Joe Buck being built up just because everybody keeps yelling his name. I mean, like, mm. here, just listen to the intro. Get along, little doggies. It's your misfortune and none of my own. Where's that Joe Buck? Where's that Joe Buck? Where's that Joe Buck? Get along, little doggies. Where is that Joe Buck? Look at this crap. Yeah, where's that Joe Buck? Where's that Joe Buck? Where's that Joe Buck? You're due here at four o'clock. You know what you can do with them dishes. And if you ain't man enough to do it for yourself, I'd be happy to oblige. I really would. Okay, I mean, that was a log clip because there are 8 million things to unpack in that. Yeah. I mean, like, one, you get the sense of a man who's really vain. Right. Two, you get the sense of a man who's really flaky. Three, the clip opens with him dropping the soap, and I do not know if that's, like, unnerving foreshadowing. And you have, like, this mm. close-up of him zipping his pants. There's a lot of kind of sexual energy right. in this. Uh, four or five, I've lost count of what I'm talking about. But you have him, like, spinning around in the mirror. You have this idea of a guy who's, like, putting on pretense, being kind of phony. And all of these things, all of this information, like, gathering into the world of who Joe Buck is... But actually, that's not even the part that Michael Childers came up with. He came up with the part right before that, which is like the opening millisecond of this, where you have the sound of like horses' hooves, like you're watching a Western. And you get this glimpse of a shut-down drive-in in Texas. And this idea of mythology that's already fading by the time you see Joe Buck put on his coat. You know, he's dressing up like something that's already dead. And that was that was Michael Childers' brainstorm of like how to get into this film. I love that. That opening shot. Is really beautiful. It just starts on this white screen, and you slowly pan down. You don't know what you're looking at, and you see like a an old drive-in uh, with like a playground, and there's a little kid on a on like a rocking horse, or you know, one of those you know spring-loaded horses. And and I love that you see this town that's very familiar to us. You know, the last picture show. This idea of a town that you must escape, and that simple image puts you in his mind frame right away. And I'm just, I'm on board to find out more about him, but I understand why he would want to leave. Even though his reason or what he wants to do might be suspect, I'm on board with him going, I got to get out of this town. Even that diner he works in is just, it's disgusting. Like just seeing the, the plates get scraped off in that disgusting kitchen. Like you get why he wants to leave. And also you understand that he's from this town and doesn't quite understand that what he's selling, no one is buying anymore. Not only does he want to escape, but he doesn't even fit in in this town. Like, I'm a Texan. Right. And I'm really fascinated by fake Texans. Okay. Because you can just tell. Like, when George Bush was president, George Mm. W. Bush, your Texas accent's so fake. It annoyed me so much because he was from Connecticut. He moved to Texas in his 20s. And there's this, like, fake Texan thing that happens. Like, when Glenn Beck used to live in Texas, you're like, no, dude. And what's fascinating to me about Joe Buck is he's a fake Texan who's from Texas. You right. know, you see him walking down the street with a cow print suitcase, and you're like, nah, dude. Like you, and, and it's true. Like, he's putting on an act already but himself. is he a fake Texan, or is he 
a Texan trying to be what people think Texans are. I think it's that. I think, but I think the whole thing is we watch him walking as we're hearing everybody's talking at me. Yeah. And the camera just takes in his outfit enough for you to go like, nah, nobody else looks like him in his own hometown. No, I mean, no one looks like him anywhere. I mean, he looks like a 1940s movie star. Like, you know, you would see like Tex, you know, like, you know, it's, he looks like Roy Rogers. Yeah, which is why it's so interesting that then he walks by a movie theater that's showing the Alamo and the movie theater is like closed and trashed, you know? Yeah, that whole last picture show thing. This John Wayne image isn't going to work anymore. What do you think about the song? Let's hear a little bit more of that song. Everybody's talking at me I don't hear words they're saying Only the echoes of my mind People stopping staring I can't see their faces Only the shadows of their eyes What do you think that song is trying to tell us? I was thinking about that. Everyone's talking at me. I don't understand a word they're saying. Are we supposed to get something from the character there? Yeah, I mean, I think he does never really take in what people say to him. Right. That's one of the things I think is really fascinating about him is he wants to be a hustler. He's very bad at it. And part of why he's bad at it is that he's not listening to even what women say. He's not picking up on their body language. Right. Uh, when he even finally meets a woman towards the second half of the film, she's like, don't call me ma'am, kind of. Right. And he like just keeps calling her ma'am. You know, He doesn't take in what anybody's saying. He, he has this image of himself as being somebody incredibly charming that women can't resist and it never works for him not even at the beginning when he's on the bus he's trying to talk to women on the bus mothers children nobody finds him charming even in his own state well and i found it interesting that the women that he was attracted to seemingly felt older to me and i think this ties back to his whole backstory i mean his backstory that you know his mother i think in the book it's a little bit more clear-cut that his mother might have been a sex worker because uh, you have her drop him off here with his grandmother looking yeah. in film language code, kind of tardy. She's like in tight, colorful pants that I want. Deeply. Right. Yeah. But exactly. in the film, you're supposed to be like, oh, man. Yeah. She's really got her priorities wrong. But you see him also like massaging his grandmother and wanting to make his grandmother happy and kind of betrayed when his grandmother finds love. And, you know, so he's got this really warped idea about women and love. And I found it interesting that the women that he was approaching or the game that he was trying to play was, oh, I can make older women feel happy. Because that's what he was kind of taught he could do. Yeah, I pulled like two quick clips of this that also just all happened in the first 10 minutes of this mm-hmm. movie. Because I think they contain so much information about how his grandmother is very inappropriate with him. You know, mm-hmm. you see him in bed with her while she's sort of naked. Everybody's kind of topless. There's a grown man there. She's flattering him nonstop. But in a way that doesn't really seem to have any basis in reality. Yeah. And then, here, let's just listen. Oh, oh that's nice. Oh, look. Oh, oh that's nice, honey. And the music sort of just pauses to make sure we yeah. pay total attention. And then a couple minutes later, a minute and a half, you get this one. You look real nice, lover boy. Real nice. Make your old grandma proud. 
You're going to be the best-looking cowboy in the whole parade. You'll be the best-looking one there. <laughs> Bye, honey. I'll leave the TV dinner in the fridge. Your old grandma got herself a new bow. Bye now. Well, I have a theory, but I want to hear what you're going to say. Well, okay. There's a line in there that I think is really interesting, which is, she says, I left you a TV dinner. And we hear that line later on, like another kind of flash forward back, whatever you want to call it. I left you a TV dinner. And I was thinking as I was watching this, this really is a story about a guy who was raised completely on images from TV. And this idea that they even Mm. keep saying TV dinner, this is what you ate. This is what you live on. This movie is fascinated by TV and this kind of artificialness that he just believes in. Like he believes in everything he hears from the media. Well, I mean... Look, we can draw such a fine line to Last Picture Show on the idea that TV and film are influencing this town that's not getting any other, and forgive me for this broad statement, but culture, they're kind of cut off. So that's the only, that's the only, uh, you know, input is just like what they're getting from TV and film. But that voice that we just played, that scene we just played, I was just watching it, something struck me and I thought about another movie on this list. Psycho and Norman Bates's mother. And, you know, there is a similar thing going on. Even the way that her voice sounds, you know, it's a little more like, you know, it's like, it's not, you know, whatever. It's not Catherine Hepburn like I just did. But there is something attached to it. I'm Catherine Hepburn coming from behind the grave to haunt you because you don't like African Uh, Queen. But, uh, and duly so. Um, But I thought there was something about that, that kind of creepy protectiveness the mother had over Norman Bates, that the grandmother had over Joe Buck, that, you know, made me go, I wonder the statement that we're making that like these boys that were coddled and maybe even a replacement for men that weren't there who were forced to kind of become this father figure, you you split in two different ways. I mean, one person, you know, is trying to be a hustler. The other one becomes a murderer. Like, there is something interesting, though, about that relationship. And I think, you know, looking again, it's about this small town cut off from society, a mother that is holding a boy in a place where he shouldn't be. I just thought it was interesting. And I, I saw some similarities there. And I think if you put their voices together, come on, listeners, <laughs> do it for me. Uh, I think you would, that they, even the way it's, her voice is tinge the creepy sound behind it it's not like it it, it's the music is kind of opening up to hear like it it seems more um you know like a theremin is underneath it or something like that you know i don't know there's something bizarre about when you hear i mean that's fascinating because i didn't clip this because i was like i have pulled so many clips from the first 10 minutes because i find them so fascinating that i was like i'll just say this one out loud but while he's still on that bus you hear an advertisement that goes that's a powerful mother ain't it I was like, Jesus, we're really hammering this home. I mean, but my question is, when you have the shadow of a mother that influences Mm -hmm. the things that the male character does that we're like, oh, really? Really? You're going to go murder that dude? Right. Oh, really? You're going to go, like, sell yourself in New York? I mean, are they just saying, like, we're kind of letting this guy off the hook because of of that woman who, who raised him? Well, you know, I wonder about this. And I was thinking, like, is this coming out of um, a generation of people who are the first to kind of live through divorce or where divorce is acceptable because it feels like I'm fucked up because I was forced not to be a kid. You know, it seems like that's what we're railing against. And, you know, this is obviously based on a book. So is Psycho. I don't know, but there seems to be an agenda that is roughly in the same idea. Like, 
you know, these are the first people kind of living through more public divorces or separations. I, and, and as a culture, maybe we were dealing with them at the same time. I, don't, I, I There's wonder, something like, about when, that. When did we all start? I mean, is this around the area where people started going to psychoanalysis and being like, you're like this because of mm. your mom? I wonder. I mean, I think, you know, both of these are based on books. And I think that Psycho comes out in 1959, the book. And uh, Midnight Cowboy comes out in 1965. So roughly in the same era, within five years of each other. I think, you know, sometimes a culture is dealing with these ideas. But this idea of, you know, this relationship with a mother and and how it affects, you know, the son. And obviously these are extreme cases and, and, and there are less. And and I just think it's it's kind of an interesting you know, for, for people out there smarter than us to kind of break down. But I think, you know, in that idea of the 50s going into the 60s, that, that seems about right to me. Like this is be something that people are wrestling with. And you're talking about psychoanalysis. I think I think there could be something there. Well, and I think we should also, I mean, baby boomers go so hard on millennials because mm-hmm. they're like, all you guys got so many gold medals just for showing up. Right. But that's in here too. You hear this mother voice um, be like, you're just the best. You're better than the rest of them. You know, right. the girlfriend being like, you're better. You're special. You're special. I mean, this movie makes the point that Joe Buck, baby boomer Joe Buck, this is baby boomer Joe right. Buck. He would have been born in like, what, 1947 sure. or eight, probably? I believe you. Baby boomer Joe Buck, he was raised like they accuse millennials of being raised. Well, let me tell you something. I know everything I need to know about Joe Buck by one simple fact. Not anything that I see in the first minute or anything like that. I know it because he is listening to the radio without headphones in a public <laughs> bus. I'm like, come on now. You can't do that. That is uh, the rudest thing you could possibly ever do in any place. I mean, I guess no wonder nobody likes him. Like, nobody likes him. No, I mean, he's an alienating guy because he is walking around like he is Paul Newman and he puts up that Paul Newman uh, poster in his room, but he's not Paul Newman. You know, he doesn't have the class. He doesn't have the looks. Um, I mean, in many respects, I was looking at him, and I know John Voight, and I'm familiar with John Voight, Anaconda, great film, should have been on the list. Uh, Mission Impossible, first one. Of course. Uh, Trump videos, love it. Um, oh yeah, uh, but he looks a little bit like a, a, a like a Ricky Schroeder, like a little bit more of a, a grown up Ricky Schroeder at that time. Like he's got like the very boyish face, and I'm saying at that time. Okay, I'm I mean, talking about the time when Ricky Schroeder was a boy, uh, <laughs> not Ricky Schroeder now. I do think the world is biased against blonde men, so I I want to not defend Joan John Voight, the old man now who's right. like a crazy person, but. We do go hard on blonde men. But I think what's fascinating... But he's I'm, so boyish. Like, you know, he, yeah. he doesn't have, like... What I'm saying is, he looks like a child in an adult's body. He doesn't look like a sexy man. You know what I'm saying? And I feel like that there's he's a got, difference. He's got, like, flesh everywhere. Like, he's got folds in his face that don't make sense. His, his chin is so full. I mean, he looks like a guy who had Beverly Hills plastic surgery. He got, like, fillers right. everywhere. But it's just his face. But that's what I'm saying. It's like a boyish, baby, fat face. And, and I don't think, you know, when you think of, like a sexy kind of road hard man, you know, it's not that it's not, it looks, it looks too young. And, you know, and that's, uh, that, that's the only image I kept on thinking in my head. I was like, he looks like Ricky Schroeder from Silver Spoons. <laughs> I mean, I think John Voight always felt like that was sort of his problem is like, he looked close to a leading man. You know, he looks like a leading man, honestly. Right. Like he looks, you know what he is? You know, there's like this thing that I once wrote a piece about because I was like deeply in love with Jonathan Brandis when I was a child. Oh wow! Do you remember Jonathan yeah, Brandis? Yeah, of course. From yeah. uh, Deep Space. Not sorry. From uh, Sequest. DSV. Yeah, Sequest. Yes, yeah, Sequest. Yeah. From Ladybugs, Sidekicks, mm-hmm. um, Stepfather Two, uh, Neverending oh, Story boy. Two. Wow. I 
deeply, deep. deeply loved yeah. Jonathan Brandis. And there's this type of face that boys have that girls are in love with, you know, when they're mm-hmm. like 15, 16, which is this really feminine face because right. you're a young girl. Men are scary. You're, your first right. crush is not going to be some giant dude with a beard when you're like right. 12, 13. It's going to be a dude who looks like John Voight, maybe like a teenage John Voight. Right. But that that face doesn't tend to age well on most men, which is why I think a lot of teen male stars don't really transition that well to adulthood. Or they do the Leonardo DiCaprio thing where they comb their hair back and get fat just to try to look like manly <laughs> and, you know, disappointing. No, but it's, it's the biggest fight because the cover of Teen Beat is a very different cover than a movie poster with an adult man on it. it, it you know, men look different. George Clooney is not going to be a young, cute teenager. He was an attractive 20-year-old, but as he's gotten older, he's gotten to be more of a man. You know, he has more of the traditional look of a man. Exactly. But what I think is really interesting about John Boyd is he he looks like he could have been – he actually even was offered this part of being the Ryan O'Neill character in Love Story, you know, kind of like a 70s love story leading man. And he turned it down because he wanted to be a character actor. And I think he kind of toggled between like how do I be the weirdo that I am, the theater actor that I am? Mm -hmm. Like how do I be taken seriously when I'm a blonde with big chubby cheeks? Look, the fact that he's even in this film is – is kind of a long shot. The original actor was supposed to be this actor, uh, Michael Sazarin. And I'm going to show you a picture of him right now. This is him. Uh, kind of describe what he looks like to you. Uh, he looks kind of like Luke Skywalker. Yeah, but a little bit more manly than Luke Skywalker, doesn't he? I mean, like, Mark Hamill also has that kind of young face, but this looked a little bit more weathered to me. He has but... a lot of hair. He has a lot of, like, kind of a swoop of brown hair. He looks very 70s dreamboat. Like, I could see him with an unbuttoned shirt, and an acoustic guitar sitting in a park in San Francisco, and that's his album cover. <laughs> I like that. But he does not look as boyish as John Voight. Like, he looks a little bit more like a man, right? That's about. He the... doesn't look as unintelligent as John Voight. Well, John Voight really, I think, and that's the kind of package I think makes this film so kind of funny. When I said earlier that this movie has similarities to Dumb and Dumber, it's because the way that he is in this movie, he's dumb he, I mean, aggressively so. I mean, you know, just talk about that scene in the party where he puts on the glasses and he's like, you know, guess who it is? It's like, it's me. You know, it's like, and yes, he's high. But, you know, just the idea that Joe Buck would think that putting on glasses, uh, you know, would hide him. Like, he's just a, he's a silly, I mean, a simpleton, right? And, I mean, I think in many respects, that choice of Michael Sazerin not taking this part, it was it was great because that whole picture makes this movie more interesting, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think it has to be really hard to play dumb with such enthusiasm that he has. You know, he's very, very good at being dumb. Like, and you want to scream at him. It's it's like he's walking through his own horror film where he's, he meets Ratso Rizzo and he's like, oh, you can take as much of a cut as I've got as you want. And you're like, no, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing? He, you know, goes to um, bed with Sylvia Miles as the woman that he thinks picks him up. She thinks he's picked her up. Uh, she wheedles $20 out of him because she's crying. And he's like, here, take what do you want? No, what do you, you buy want? it. Yeah. Like, he, yeah, it's hard to be that much of an innocent, especially when you see in these flashes that he has suffered a lot. Oh, I mean, he is hiding such a dark, well, I guess I would say is, he has suffered through so much, but I don't think he's carrying the weight the way someone else would carry it. I think his naivete allows him to have gone through it without having the burden of it. Now, the reason why we have John Voight in this movie uh, and in this role is really 
because of Dustin Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman auditioned with both actors. And he's kind of famously quoted as saying that when you watch a screen test, he's like, when you watch me with Michael Sazarin, you couldn't take your eyes off of me. And when you watch me with John Voight, you can take your eyes off of John Voight. And I thought that was the person you need to cast as Joe Buck. And so they fired or, you know, they, they moved around casting because they think there was a little bit of, you know, there's a debate on who it should be. But seemingly Dustin Hoffman and the casting director really championed uh, John Voight for this role. And, and it's really smart because if Dustin Hoffman was the showy part of this film, it wouldn't work as well. Like, you need Joe Buck to be that image, that iconic image of the cowboy hat walking down the crowded seat. I mean, this is a movie full of iconic images. But that face, that naivete, it, it tells you so much. That crowded street scene of him walking down, you know, whatever it is, Broadway. It, it's such a great, great shot. And that you get it all without even hearing a word. Yeah, I mean, it's got to be hard to play a character who is on paper, to me, very attractive, and yet understand why he's repellent to women mm-hmm. for the reason well, that... Well, why is he on paper attractive to you? Well, because if you took the figure of John Voight uh-huh. and stripped him of the person he is in real life and stripped him of the character of Joe Buck, okay. I would be like, that's an attractive man. Okay. So but you like that, you like that baby on... face. You still like that Jonathan Brandis face. I mean, I do. Okay, yeah. that's okay. Yeah. That's okay. We're getting to I learn do. a little bit about you. <laughs> well, yeah. And I think when he is so on paper charming looking where you would expect him to be charming, mm-hmm. it adds to the, the character. Like, why isn't this working for him? Why can't anybody... Like, why why can't he get anybody to talk to him? Like, what is wrong with him? And you start to really think there must be something deeply wrong with this man under under that face. Well, he's got nothing. He is just the cowboy boots, the hat, and that suitcase you talked about. Like, he is, he is a movie screen, if you think about it like that. Like, a movie screen is not a three-dimensional image. It's a, it's, you know, it. It's just a flat image, and that's what he is. Which you look, I'm you know, I'm no film theorist, but uh, maybe that's why we're starting the movie on a, a flat screen like that because uh, this guy's got no dimensions. <laughs> uh, I mean, um, I do want to yeah. give a shout out to that casting director you mentioned. Her name is Marion Doherty. Mm-hmm. Massive, huge deal in casting direction. Never cast me in anything. Well, if you had she been passed? a little, she a little older, maybe she would have cast you in Batman or Lethal Weapon two films. Ooh, she did. okay. But she's the best. She's absolutely the best. Although it's so funny to hear you say that Dustin Hoffman was that generous and being like, we're looking at this John Voight, let's cast him because Mm -hmm. he's so competitive. And I think when they started actually making the movie, they were so competitive with each other about like, oh man, I got to outact this guy. No, I got to outact this guy. And like their tension really, I think, shows through. Well, I I agree. Um, It's a buddy movie, but it's a more aggressive, odd couple. But here's what I'll say about a personality like Dustin Hoffman. And we've seen him a lot now. Uh, I would say Dustin Hoffman. Yeah, I'm kind of getting a little sick of his face, man. Well, but you know what? I want to say something about this. The Graduate, Tootsie, Midnight Cowboy, All the President's Men. These are very different performances. And I know that you're a little sick of Dustin Hoffman. But if you look at the body of work here, it's pretty impressive. It it, it is not one note. And for a leading man uh, to do this kind of body of work... You have to sit back and and be appreciative of that, like because you look at our leading men now, and I love a Will Smith movie. I I you know I am always up to see it, but it's always a Will Smith movie. I think DiCaprio does a great job of really kind of transforming from part to part. He never combs his hair differently. But don't you feel? I mean, DiCaprio, you can see him differently. Like DiCaprio, would you put can his roles? You? 
You really don't think that you can see DiCaprio like there's not a DiCaprio and uh, Quentin Tarantino's Hateful Eight is not different than Romeo and Juliet, which is not different than okay. You had to jump back. Aviator. You had to jump back twenty years. I love the Romeo and Juliet DiCaprio. Okay, I think DiCaprio after Catch Me uh, if, if you, you can. can, instead of an octave, you're getting a couple minor notes. Okay, all right, fair, but I but again, then you're proving my point, which is I don't think that leading actors do this much range. So I, I knew that you were going to come to kind of swipe at Hoffman, but <laughs> I, I believe that he is actually thinking about this and watching these four films. I'm like, fuck, this guy's doing it. But to my point, I was going to say, a guy who is that competitive wants the best actor to be against him and then wants that actor to lift up his game, already knows going into the film, people are going to be wanting to watch him, so now I have to be better. And that, I think, is a cycle of you know, surround yourself by the best and then try to beat the best. And and I think, you know, this is a total transformation for him. This comes right after The Graduate. Um, He's casting it before The Graduate comes out. So he was cast before he was famous. Mike Nichols is like, what the fuck are you doing? Dude, you're going to wreck this whole thing. You're going to be a leading man in a romantic comedy. Ro- you know, you're going to be this, you know, the guy that every woman loves. And you're going to do this? This character, of, you know, Ratso Rizzo, this... Like this disgusting, you know, disgusto, uh, you know, and to his credit, again, I have more empathy for Dustin Hoffman. Like, fuck, he does this role right after that? Like, and it's so different. You know, I have a theory. Okay. And maybe this is because I am coming with an anti-Hoffman worldview. I think what draws Dustin Hoffman to acting is just the chance to get to be an asshole and say it's a character. Really, Amy? Kind of, kind of, kind of. I think I think Dustin Hoffman really likes living. I think he really appreciates being in the world, and I appreciate that about him. Mm-hmm. I think that Dustin Hoffman takes parts because he wants to be that part. He wants okay. to learn that person. He wants to put on this thing. He wants to embody somebody. He wants to embody Ratso Rizzo so that he can do stuff like he did here, which was like go out eating in restaurants as Ratso Rizzo, blow his nose and annoy people. I think he loves that part of this job so much. I think he takes method super seriously. Well, look, I think that he is what we all like, which is a character actor. I mean, I, you know, I, I think I would put myself in that vein. I, it's something that I look at. You, It's the more interesting part, right? It's the character that does blow his nose while he's eating. It's the character that has a limp. You know, he's putting okay, okay. pebbles he's, in his shoe to keep a limp. But yes, go ahead. But, but I, he's doing it when the cameras aren't going. I think he just loves doing it. Well, I think look, he just loves being like, ha I went to Chasen's and blew my nose in a lady's salad. All right, but here's what I think you might be getting at. And I know what you are getting at, but I think he is a scenery chewer, right? Is that like, you? Like I'm not I'm, saying that. I'm it, saying he is a world chewer. Okay. All right, so you're just saying that you just don't like... So you're basing your opinion on Dustin Hoffman, the actor, based on stories that he's telling outside of acting. But you have to judge him on the movie. Judge, not judging on these anecdotes, which we don't know are true or false. Because, I believe they are true. Okay, well... I believe that they are true. Well, let's... Well, let's look, then I'm going to play something for you, and then let's see. So okay. one of the most famous parts of this film, right, is the Dustin Hoffman scene where they're like, hey, hey, I'm walking here, right? Now... If you ask Dustin Hoffman, he has one side of the story. And if you ask the director, there's another. Take a listen. The scene where Ratso is nearly hit by a taxi. I maintain that we had a stunt driver in a taxi and we queued him in, and that was the scene. Well, it was a hidden camera. So the camera's across the street in a van because John intelligently didn't want to stack the streets with extras trying to look like New Yorkers, and also I don't think it was that big a budget of movie. 
So we, it's called a stolen shot. So like on the eighth or ninth take, suddenly the dialogue fits the exact moment the light turns to green and we cross the street and this cab literally tried to kill us. So here is Dustin Hoffman telling one of his famous stories. The story is told so many times that, you know, it's an improvised moment. One of the best scenes in cinema, improvised, improvised. And you have the director going, well, no, I think that was a stunt driver. And you have Dustin Hoffman telling this big story about, oh my God, we got this thing on tape and we never would have gotten it. And I just want you to look at the Hoffman stories with a grain of salt, because I do believe that I think part of his acting is sitting on that stage and telling the story about, yes, one of the most iconic lines in cinema was improvised. Okay, well, I think the Hoffman story has one out in the popular consciousness. Everybody believes that one, that Hoffman was just sort of, they were timing the scene, they kept screwing it up. Yeah, they didn't have the budget, they were shooting it on the fly, and then the car really did try to run him over. I actually don't think he's lying. And here, okay. here's why. Let's really listen yeah, to that scene. Kind of a uh, middleman. And that's where old Daniel comes in. You know what I mean? Hey! I'm walking here! I'm walking here! Up yours, you son of a bitch! You don't talk me that way! Get out of here! Don't worry about that. Actually, that ain't a bad way to pick up insurance, you know? Okay, here's why I think that he's being serious. Because his ratso voice... You hear it in the movie. It's kind of high. It's very nasal. When he says, I'm walking here, his voice totally changes. He sounds like Dustin Hoffman. His real voice comes out. He does not sound like Ratso. Okay. But I still think that that may just be Ratso in a higher register. Because then you're saying, all right, well, it's an improvised moment, but then he's not in character. So is he a good actor or is it an improvised moment? Because if you're improvising out of character, then is that a... I don't know. I think it's both. I think... think I think he improvises a beat later because it's a beat later that he starts muttering about okay. like blah, 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 blah. He doesn't ad lib about insurance. I think that's him walking it off okay. and being like, I'm going to keep it going. But I think that initial I'm walking here, that is that is Hoffman anger. At the end of the day, I don't know with Dustin Hoffman what's real and what's fake. We've heard a lot of stories about the movies that he's done, you know, the hands-on nature that he's been in all of these roles. And I think he's a guy who at a dinner party is going to keep you incredibly entertained and I think fact and fiction and is all kind of blurred. I think the experience of the character overtakes it all. You know, I think I think he's in character, but I think he's also enjoying being an actor. And and that's how he got this part. You know, they didn't want to cast him this pretty boy in the thing. So you know, he he you know met the director late night at like a place where all of his actor friends hung out, and he had a scraggly beard. And you know, he he came in all dirty and greasy looking, and then the director's like, oh. You're the guy, you know, like, I think he just, I think he... Uh, I think he approaches acting like he's bungee jumping. You know, I think he's looking for thrills. I mean, there's a scene where um, when he was practicing being Rizzo, he's walking around, he's practicing talking with John Voight, he's doing the, the ratso cough, and he starts coughing so hard that he throws up on John Voight's boots. Oof. And John Voight was like, come on, what the fuck, man? Basically, like, why do you have to take it so far? And he thought he did it just to, like, steal the scene. Right, right. You know, but that's Hoffman. I think he he goes so, 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 so far. And you know what? I'm down with the Hoffman when he wants to vomit. I'm less cool with the Hoffman when he's like, I don't trust anybody else to go this far unless I slap them. And I'm like, all right, right. that Hoffman can eat a dick. But uh, that said, of I all think, the Hoffmans I, well, on that, this list. But, I mean... I think this is a great performance. Yeah. Don't you think? I mean, this is a very, 
While big performance, kind of a nuanced performance, I believe him in this world. And to think that this is right after The Graduate, I would be blown away. I mean, it's a completely different performance. It's a completely uh, realized character. And it's broad, you know, because it has that, like, uh, that very New York accent. I think that New York accent is a is an accent that kind of can take you out of something, but he plays the dimensions of Ratso uh, in a way that is so endearing. And, you know, you're, you're along for the ride with this character. And I think he becomes, you know, without, obviously without this character, the movie kind of flounders, but he really, I think this movie works because they both were fighting almost to be the lead of it. That makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that Hoffman even said at the time is he said, quote, actors are like women. Women check check each other out in a way that men don't. They look at the breasts, they look at the legs, they look at the ass, they look at what she chooses to wear. And actors, we check each other out in a not dissimilar way. I'm like, okay, I don't know if I totally buy Hoffman's take on what it's like being a woman, but mm-hmm. okay. Well, he uh, was Tootsie. <laughs> yeah, after this. Maybe that's why he was Tootsie, so he'd have a right to always get to say shit like that. Um <laughs> But I will say this, like, I did notice when we were doing The Graduate that when we were reading a lot of the reviews from The Graduate, they did seem strange in the way that they talked about Hoffman, you know, being Jewish very openly and mm-hmm. in ways that kind of were weird to go back in time and see that that was okay. And or maybe it was never okay because it was never okay to Hoffman because that's one of the reasons that I think really fueled him to turn in a good performance right. in this film is he said that when he was going through the reviews of The Graduate, he said, quote, some of the stuff in the press was brutal. I felt there was a kind of disguised anti-Semitism. They would describe me in the ways that the cartoons in Nazi Germany pictured Jews. Like he, they would call him beak-nosed or squinty eyes or nasal. And he said, I was determined to show them in big letters them that I was an actor and that revenge is a good motivation. Oh, wow. It's very interesting. I mean, this is an interesting film, too, because, you know, no one knows what to make of it when it comes out. And we can kind of get to that a little bit later, but... You know, I think that Dustin Hoffman is probably reading these reviews while he's making this film, right? I mean, so, you know, an actor in the throes of a new performance probably pushing harder, you know, than he would have if The Graduate was successful. He already read it. You know, he's, you know, maybe reading them at the same time. Yeah, I mean, it feels like either way you take the walking here story, if they had shot that scene six months later, they probably wouldn't have gotten away with Dustin Hoffman walking on the street going unnoticed. Right. You know, this was right at the moment where he was about to make being verite impossible. Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. So, Amy, I know I'm drawing all these comparisons, and there's one that just jumped out to me, and it may be a long shot, but it's a moment between Ratso and Joe Buck, 
where you hear a little bit more about Joe Buck. I think it's probably the most introspective he gets. I'm going to play this clip. I like the way I look. It makes me feel good. It does. And women like me, goddammit. Hell, the only one thing I've ever been good for is loving. Women go crazy for me. That's a really true fact. Right so hell, crazy Annie, they had to send her away. Then how come you ain't scored once the whole time you've been in New York? Because I need management, goddammit, because you stole $20 off of me. And that's why you're going to stop trapping around about Florida and, and get your skinny butt moving, earn $20 worth of management. And when I heard that scene, something clicked over my mind, and I started thinking about planes, trains, and automobiles. And there's a scene with uh, Steve Martin and John Candy. They're in a cramped hotel, a shitty hotel, and they're in that shitty apartment. And the scenes felt very similar. It's like this moment where, you know, Rizzo's just been razzing uh, Joe Bucking kind of comes to this moment and Steve Martin's been kind of razzing John Candy and they both come to this like little introspective moment. And here's my moment that I just thought they're very similar. You want to hurt me? Go right ahead if it makes you feel any better. I'm an easy target. Yeah, you're right. I talk too much. I also listen too much. I could be a cold-hearted cynic like you. But I don't like to hurt people's feelings. Well, you think what you want about me. I'm not changing. I like, I like me. My wife likes me. My customers like me. Because I'm the real article. What you see is what you get. And that was just a moment I was like, I feel like this is the same scene. And I thought to think that, that planes, trains, and automobiles... And Midnight Cowboy are very similar. <laughs> there's like just a moment in there that I don't know. I just connected to it. And I was like, that's where this relationship, there's a DNA of that relationship in there. They're both, you know, they're relying on each other. They don't want to rely on each other. That's my hot take here that Planes, Trains, and Automobiles is uh, a version of Midnight Cowboy. I would say there's one key difference, though. Okay. Which is that John Candy speech. I mm -hmm. think he's being sincere. Mm -hmm. And I think when you hear that music come in, the movie agrees that he's being sincere, right. that he's telling the truth. I think Midnight Cowboy knows that women do not like Joe Buck. And that even when he says they do... But do you think that Joe Buck knows that? I think No, that, that's true. Yeah, okay. I think Joe Buck doesn't know that, but I think the movie knows better. Okay, so I, I hear what you're saying. So like, but, but both characters think they're saying a true statement. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And I think I like it when Joe Buck has those things, that has like his little quip where he's like, I ain't a for real cowboy, but I'm sure one hell of a stud. Right. Like that we see that he's walking through the world with these two artificial layers on, you know, the cowboy layer and then the hustler layer. And neither of them are actually Joe Buck. Right. You know, I don't know if there is a Joe Buck, to be honest. I mean, I don't think there is a Joe Buck that isn't based on the person he's with, you know, because young Joe Buck became the surrogate for his grandmother. And then, you know, this Joe Buck, he's taking care of Ratso in a way that, you know, they both are taking care of each other, but he's like a caregiver. And, you know, and there's something interesting. He's yeah, he selfless. He could go to Florida and work at an old folks home, actually. Basically, yeah. I mean, look, he's giving up his his dream. He gives up everything. He's about to hit it rich, or maybe not rich. He's about to kind of achieve his dream, and he sacrifices all that for his friend, to be with his friend. Now, he's too naive to kind of see how much, can you know, how close to death Dustin Hoffman is. But if if he wasn't sick, you would see the two of them living a life in Miami, 
And I would almost see like a clean cut version of Joe Buck, you know, running around Miami, just kind of doing odds and ends. You yeah, know, he, when he puts that yellow shirt on, he's like, I want to do just labor with my hands. I mean, I think he just wants to be loved. And in a weird way, like having someone to connect with is more important than, you know, it's what Annie gave him. Like yeah. she was the one who said, you're the one, you're the one. I mean, in the book, the Annie story is way darker yeah. than this. Um, but you're right. He wants to be loved for who he is, but he does not know who he is. And yeah. he's putting on so many false layers of trying to be loved that it's pushing people away. And also because he is a little bit dense and he doesn't understand he's insulting women by the nature of right. being like, you have to pay for this. And like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Okay, well, let's talk about his work as a hustler from this one montage we see at the very yes. beginning before he gives up, though. Because he shows up in New York He's ready to go. He puts on his, like, finest faux cowboy shirt. He starts walking down, and he doesn't seem to realize that he's, like, A, invisible to everybody. You know, he walks right. past a man who's, like, passed out on the sidewalk, and he's no better. Like, nobody makes eye contact with him. Nobody cares. It doesn't matter that he's alive at all. Um, he's staring at all the women, like, not just the hot women, but literally, like, every woman trying to get anyone's attention. And none of them have any interest in him at all. Like, he has completely misjudged his own appeal, which I think is really fascinating. Yeah. And he doesn't even seem to get that, like, women are completely onto him when he runs up and he's like, oh, can you give me, you know, directions to, what is it, the Statue of Liberty? Right, which made me think, like, were there many prostitutes running around the street at this point that women were so onto it? I think women aren't even thinking he's a prostitute, just that he's trying to get a date, you know, or something. Right. Like, something. That he wants something, who knows what, I don't care. But it's like he doesn't understand that women are annoyed almost every day on the street. Right, right. And that his approach is not going to work. And then he goes by Tiffany's as though he's like, I don't know, either looking for a rich woman or he's seen breakfast at Tiffany's and he's like a dumb tourist. And then he thinks like, oh, man, maybe I have an in with this like woman, Sylvia Miles with the dog, who's like also patronizing him kind of at the start. Like, fine, come on up. Blah, right. blah, 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 blah. And that scene in her apartment, I think, is so interesting because you see him like trying so hard, you know, like nibbling on her ear like trying to be present and she's on the phone she doesn't even so care. distracted by him yeah so distracted and even like the scene is kind of like distracted you know they're they're boning on a remote control which i think part of that was like schlesinger had never seen a remote control until he came to america and he was like this thing is weird well i do love that like that's the way that they showed sex again talking about that thing about what this movie does that so many other movies do poorly like i never had seen like a sex scene shot like that. Like you're watching the speed of their sex and you're getting it all from just the, the flipping of the channels and seeing it. And again, you're talking about TV and the influence of TV and whatever. I don't want to take you off your point, but I just love that way of showing sex. Well, yeah. And everything that they're showing on that TV is, with the exception of Betty Davis, is basically repulsive. It's kind of like, it's almost like we're watching a Clockwork Orange and you're getting a montage of terrible things, that yeah. cream corn and blackface. And you're like, what on earth? And this montage is designed to make you be like, what a sad sex scene, even if she's sort of happy at the end. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, <laughs> I mean, I always have cream corn by the bed after sex. Oh. It's a, <laughs> um, I mean, I think that this movie deals with really, you know, um, I don't want to say intense, but I want to say it takes a lot of subjects that are dealt with in ways that we're used to seeing them, you know, and kind of not only desexualizes them, but kind of makes them pedestrian. Going back to the idea of like Sybil Shepherd on the pool table, you know, all this idea like, but I think in a way that's to its uh, detriment at a certain point too, because I think the way they handle, you know, gay sex in this film 
is is very interesting. It seems like every gay man in this film wants to be punished. Um, I mean, like, you know, young Bob Balaban, uh, you know, is like, you're going to hit me. But he, you can tell he kind of wants to be hit. And then when he has, you know, when he's in that room with the the older gentleman at the end of the film, there is this, I have been bad. I deserve this. I, you know. Yeah, um, I clip that actually. Let's listen to that because yeah. it's a huge mix of like terror and gratitude. Like, because you get the sense that this second man is really religious and wants to be so traumatized that he stops trying to sleep with men. No, 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 oh, I deserve that. I brought this on myself. I know I did. My nose is bleeding. Is now, you gonna let go of that table? Now, you gonna let go of that table? You wanna bust its skull? It's such a violent scene, but you see why he's doing it. Flashes to you know Rizzo, and then his his uh, dentures fall out. It's it's a really tough scene and i know that one of the reasons why this movie got rated x is because of the gay sex in the film but it doesn't seem like he's ever enjoying it the book there is i think a much more of a gray area but here it almost seems like it's put upon him he'll suffer through it and i know that right, this... he says things like joe buck you know what you gotta do cowboy yeah and i don't know i i think that while this movie i think it did I was wrestling with this. I wanted to talk to you about this because I know that in many respects, this film was very progressive for what it was showing uh, at the time. But I also feel like it, it it's showing a, a pretty warped viewpoint of it too. And that's also from a director who is a gay man. So I don't know. I, I just was kind of wrestling with your thoughts, my thoughts on it, and I wanted to kind of hear your thoughts on it too. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there could be a level to it like Bob Balaban and this man who gets beaten – Part of it is that they're not comfortable enough and they're not living in a society where they're able to go out with their boyfriend the way that, say, like Joe and Michael were learning how to do in Mm -hmm. real life. In that there is something like the movie could be saying by making people be in the closet, they are almost inviting Mm. Not inviting. Inviting is the right word, but like, but this no. Is, but they're putting themselves happens. in a dangerous situation, exactly. right? To get what they because they can't be comfortable enough with being out, they have to try to find things in ways that may be more dangerous. Yeah, I wonder if that is one of the things it's saying, because you do see a couple glimpses of people who are out. You see them walk by a group of out men on the street, Mm -hmm. and they're actually like laughing and having a good time together. And he looks at them and kind of takes them in, and they're almost the happiest people in the film, the people who are visibly able to be themselves. But also, it's I'm sure if you followed them for a while, it was not totally safe to be them at the time. But I, I, I guess as you're saying this, I'm realizing also what I think he's showing are these two men that are not, I guess, at the at the time. And again, if I'm choosing my words incorrectly, I apologize. But stereotypically, these men were not like, they're not the kind of gay stereotypes that you would see in a film. They were just, uh, you wouldn't have picked them out of a crowd. And I think maybe that's the most progressive thing that this film does. It shows that look into gay culture. Yeah, I mean, I wonder. Like, I think there is an argument that you could watch Midnight Cowboy on a level and be like, this is very hateful to gay men. That's and what I was thinking, yeah. And I also do think there's a level where you could watch it and say, like, this is very hateful to the society that forces men to be underground, to pick up men who don't even want to sleep with them and pay them for it. Right. And I'm going to guess it's the society first. Right. You know, but I can understand if people read it the other way, too, because, I mean, it's hard to say. You know, I think it's very hard for us to kind of always contextualize the exact time. 
we don't know exactly what it was like to live in this era, in this city, across the country. So it's interesting because it's so kind of progressive. Uh, but also I did feel like, oh, is it handling it a little bit wrong too? But I guess at the end of the day, you have a man who is gay directing this film, which is a huge a huge step forward. Uh, and and he's representing culture probably through that lens. So I I, I, I kind of take away any, not complaint, but any kind of hesitation I have about how it was represented. Yeah, I mean, one of the people that I've, I've read on this movie is a critic I really respect a lot, Mark Harris. Mm-hmm. And Mark Harris, you know, who you know is married to the playwright Tony Kushner. Yeah. He's a brilliant critic. He knows a lot about screenwriting. We he's have to have Mark Harris on the show. We should. I know Mark. Oh, we, do you? We, we, like, Mark, we come on our show. Um, but Mark pointed out that, you know, there's this scene really early on when Joe Buck first meets Rizzo. And there is like an out character in that scene. And Rizzo makes fun of them and tells them to go away. Right. But that that character does not care about being insulted. And right. Mark Harris noted that um, he says that this is the first example in movies of a gay man disempowering the word. He gets called the F word. Disempowering the word by uh-huh. shugging it off. And he found that to be actually really important here. That's really, really interesting. Um, but I, what do you think about the reading that Joe Buck and Ratso are in love? You know, I've read that. Um, I think they are in love. But I think they're in love in the way that Joe Buck... I don't think they're in a sexual love. You know, it feels like family. It feels like it's a twisted thing. I mean, I don't I don't buy that they're in a relationship. Do you, do you think they are? I don't think so. I mean, on set, I think John Voight and Dustin Hoffman were like, there is only one bed in this place. What is this scene trying there's, to say? Yeah, there's but, two. <laughs> but they Because he shows them one mattress and he goes, I'll sleep in your bed. Yeah. But they do act like they're in a relationship, even in the unhealthy ways, I think, where you have Ratso cooking and slicing and trying and mm. John Voight just being checked out reading a comic book. Right. That kind of unhealthy modeling of what a relationship is. Well, I think they're both longing for that. And I think that like, most people I know, it's less about the sex that they want in a relationship. It's more about that familiarity that you want. Yeah. In a, you want somebody to come home to. You want, you know, you fall into those traps. It it, it actually gives your life some, you know, it, it, it creates order out of disorder. So I, I, buy, I buy that. I, be, I believe that they are, they act like a married couple or they act like a couple that's been in a relationship for a long time. Yeah, like the way that Joe Buck hassles Ratso about smoking. I mean, that mm-hmm. feels like him saying, I care about you. I cannot express it. In the normal way of saying, I love you genuinely as a friend. Mm-hmm. Maybe because it's it's hard for people to say that. But So I'm just going to hassle you by saying, I want you to stay alive by yelling at you. Right. You but know, I guess, I mean, you can make that argument to a lot of buddy films, I guess. You know, this kind of complete and utter, you know, you know, what about Bill and Ted? You know, they're, they're, filling, you know, they're finishing each other's sentences. They are, you know, they are one. They hang out with each other. What do you think about my reading that at the end of the movie, uh, Dustin Hoffman doesn't die. He just didn't want to pay his bus fare. <laughs> Actually, did you hear the callback as he's dying? Hold on, let's play this. Butt hurts, my chest hurts, my face hurts. And like, that ain't enough. I gotta pee all over myself. <laughs> That's funny. I'm falling apart here. I'm falling apart here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I should know, not be laughing at that. How crazy is it that Dustin Hoffman does two iconic roles back to back? Both that end with a very climactic scene on a bus, in the back seat of a bus. That's all I could kind of think about. I was like, if I'm Dustin Hoffman, I'm like, uh, I just I just kind of did this bus thing. You know, like, I mean, I know you have to do it, but it's so funny that both these scenes are iconic scenes. Even I know this scene, not even seeing the movie. And 
it's crazy to me that they that they're right back to back like that. And they are also the men who are like visibly out of place. You know, they're in wedding suits at the yeah. end of the graduate or, or bridal dresses, and here they're in dark New York clothes as they're on this bus that's going through the South until they like go and actually get brighter yeah. clothes that fit in a little bit better. They put um, Rico in a Hawaiian shirt. And actually, that makes the song fit even better that everybody's talking about me. Because don't they say, like, go in where the weather suits yeah. my clothes? Yeah. Oh, wow. And there are these beautiful shots there. Like, I love seeing that fade to black at the end where you have kind of the outside of Miami reflected over Dustin Hoffman's face as he's yeah. in the window. You have all these people staring at him. He, he the, the idea that he never gets to walk outside in Florida, I think, is really heartbreaking. Yeah, it really is. I mean, this movie does so much brilliant stuff with images and we talked about it very briefly early on but the idea of like the pops of color like did you notice that like throughout the film in the beginning like you just have like a a yellow frame or a red frame just kind of pop in and it's a, a second but it would just give you this like flash and you know the black and white everything is aggressive it, it's almost as if you know an experimental film is coming in and we see like we talked about earlier that experimental party scene which you know is the closest thing that i think i've ever seen to what a warhol type of party would be without it being a warhol film i mean he has all these weird people and they're all speaking in it and the film kind of changes its look and tone for that sequence and you see them kind of being used for what they are weirdos and and you know and they're getting high and they're they're being they're being used i mean they are being he wants to be a hustler. He got. He's being hustled there. You know, like, they're local or, color. They're, they're local color at this party. I yeah, mean, here, they're being paid by in food to perform and and do their business. Yeah, here, let's listen to a clip of that. Everything in the theater. I would like to die on the stage. And my hair, it's fur, you know. It's tendrils reaching out into space sometimes. I've watched it touch many stars. Wackos, they're all wackos. I think we better find somebody and tell them that I'm here. Hey! I mean, I love the idea that you have this, like, literal film within a film, and they're shooting it so that there is the box of the film inside yes. the film of the screen. And also Joe Buck still being delusional and thinking he's important and somebody cares that he's there. Yeah, I mean, it, it really, you know, obviously these are Warhol's people, so you're getting a real look. It's ca- It's capturing New York in a way. You know, and again, talking about, like, other films this movie influenced there's a taxi driver element here this kind of you know part of the city that you're never seeing but it, you, you're capturing a part that isn't photographed it's not the breakfast at tiffany's it's not you know the traditional new york we're seeing this counterculture new york we're seeing this dirty new york this unsafe new york which is what the 70s new york becomes i mean from everything from you know obviously taxi driver but shaft and things like this like this other side of new york not the you know not the movie we're moving away from the movie screen yeah, I mean, to be honest, I find that there's almost nothing that Taxi Driver does well that I don't think Midnight Cowboy does better. Mm. And I believe that about The Graduate, too. Even the idea that this could be, in part, a Vietnam film. You have this tiny little clip, tiny little clip, where you just see Joe Buck coming home in uniform, and that's it. Yeah. Just visual, there it is. Interpret what you will about where that's left him kind of drifting in life. Yeah. I, I think you also get... you. Know, the famous line in Plastics and The Graduate, I think this film goes just as hard, harder, much harder, on commercialism, on like that glowing green money sign for the Municipal Bank oh, of yeah. New York that teaches him to misspell money, you know, where he just 
believes all these ads he sees about like everybody should be eating steak and we've all got to go to Florida and they have that orange juice on ice commercial like mocking yeah. them almost. You know, there's so much commercialism in here that I think this makes the film a really interesting capture of the baby boomers becoming materialistic, honestly. These are baby boomers and all Joe Buck cares about is not being a total hippie burnout. He wants to make a ton of money. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream is a total chocolate game changer. We start with unbelievably creamy dark chocolate ice cream. Then we add different chocolate treats like chocolate cookies, chocolate cake, or chocolate brownies to make four decadent chocolate flavors. Because sometimes the thing that pairs best with chocolate <laughs> is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary Dairy. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Amy, obviously, you know, we are looking at this film through a lens, and we really are attracted to it on a visual level and a, on a on a narrative level, on a character level. You love Dustin Hoffman. I get it. Uh, <laughs> but how was this film received when it when it came out? Because I know the actors were nervous. Like Dustin Hoffman saw a test screening. People were walking out. He, he literally jumped into a film that he regrets doing because he was trying to save his career because he thought this movie was going to be so bad. I mean, the director, you know, is having panic attacks. Like, what have I done? I'm making this movie about a, a cowboy from Texas coming to New York to be a whore. Like, what the fuck am I doing? And and when it comes out, what's what's the reaction? Yeah, I mean, this buildup, like, first this film gets an R rating, then a psychologist tells the studio that this film uh, has, quote, like, a homosexual frame of reference that could have a negative possible influence upon youngsters. So then the studio gets nervous and makes it an X. Like, everybody is biting their nails. And this film was, like, a really big hit. I mean, what this film made in today's money is, like, $200 million, which is crazy. Wow. That is a crazy amount of money, given that at first, most people, a lot of young people couldn't even see it. Right. After the Oscars, they re-release it as an R, and it's kind of a standoff where the code people are basically like, please just even cut one frame of this movie so that we can say we edited it and made it and made it an R. And Schlesinger's like, no, like just make it wow. an R from the beginning. And they finally did, and then they re-released it, and then it made a ton of money. And most people really, really liked it. Some people wrote that it was like, contemporary but only for the now that it wasn't gonna have any staying power mm. um but one person went very hard on it roger ebert oh interesting you want to hear some roger yeah ebert? okay roger ebert said john schlesinger has not been brave enough to tell his story and draw his characters with the simplicity they require he has taken these magnificent performances in his own careful perception of American society and dropped them into an offensively trendy gimmick-ridden tarted-up vulgar exercise in fashionable cinema Trying to get the good out of Midnight Cowboy is like looking at a great painting through six inches of jello. It is there, the greatness is there, but unworthy hands have meddled with it almost beyond repair. Wow. Midnight Cowboy should have been about their mutual discovery. He's talking now about, right. about the characters of Ratso and Joe, because he really was like, I want to watch a film about these two people becoming friends. He said it should have been about the process that takes place as they learn to know each other. Instead, it reaches outside the relationship for a string of melodramatic scenes that will not do. 
He says that he hates the party scene. He hates the scene where the religious guy is trying to pray yeah. over Joe. He hates the beating scene. He says that when Joe jammed the telephone in the guy's mouth and the false teeth went flying, we already knew Joe well enough to know that he simply wouldn't do that. Why didn't Schlesinger know him as well? Wow. Then he says <laughs> that the flashbacks are a serious weakness in the movie, that we're never quite sure what goes on with the girl in Texas, what Joe's grandmother is up to. It doesn't matter. We get the general idea. But the trouble is experiences like those in Joe's background should, in the convention of Freudian shorthand, have produced a masochistic, impotent figure. That all of this background that we see does not fit into Joe Buck as we see him. So on top of the sloppy psychology, we get the gimme photo- gimmicky photography, the obligatory Warhol party, and of course the pop songs. And here's the part that I actually was like, okay, 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 I yeah. see you on this. He says, how long will it be before you recover from The Graduate and we can make a movie without a half dozen soul-searching pseudo-significant ballads? When we dump the songs, we'll be able to get rid of all of those scenes of riding on buses, walking the rainy streets, hanging out, etc. that are necessary while the songs are being sung. Which I do hate this in movies. It's like 20 minutes of a character walking right. in the rain while like indie pop plays. I die every right, time right. I see that it's Sundance. And then he kind of says, what is unbearable is a movie that could have been great, that could have touched us and lost courage. Interesting. I mean, look, I think we talk about this all the time. You see it in the wrong mindset and it hits you in a different way. Like I've heard people describe this as a comedy. I've heard people describe this as a drama. I also think that that seems to me like a reviewer, like we've seen a lot when these movies come out, that just are not on board with this kind of aggressively different style of storytelling. And Ebert normally is. Yeah, well, what I think is so interesting about that review is like, this is 1969. 1970, Roger Ebert is going to release his like, drug-fused, yeah. crazy party movie, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, one of my favorite movies. And he's even going to have this throwaway line. Listen for the word here. You need to listen to me, hippie. I don't know who you are or where you came from, but if you don't voluntarily withdraw your morbid interest in Miss Lake's affairs, I shall be forced to take legal action. Come on, man. I doubt if you'd recognize the hippie. I'm a capitalist, baby. I work for my living, not suck off somebody else. Not a penny, Miss Kelly McNamara, not a single penny, I promise you that. Porter, you're making a fool of yourself. Look at how the tramp with the morals of an alley cat. Up yours, Ratso. Not a Ratso. single penny. Hey, <laughs> love it. Ratso. He put the word Ratso in Beyond the Valley of the Dolls the next year. I want to say that that's deliberate. I also want to say another baby boomer who's just like, I'm a capitalist baby. <laughs> um... <laughs> Related to that, though, I think it is really interesting to talk about what this movie was in 1970 mm-hmm. when it, when it wins all the Academy Awards. Because that award ceremony, that Oscars where this movie wins Sweeps. Best Picture, it's insane. This is an insane moment in time because you have Dustin Hoffman and you have John Voight going against each other for Best Actor, losing to the unseen ghost of this entire movie, John Wayne and True Grit. You know, you have that even of line course. where, like, Joe Buck is, like, astonished to think that... We're always finding this, this idea of, like, they go back to the institution. Like, they go to the simple idea. I mean, they, exactly. they guys could have split the vote, too. Exactly. But really, just, like, watching this award ceremony, you really see Hollywood at this crossroads. And I pulled this one little clip from the 1970 Oscars because it really stuck with me. Fred Astaire is there. You know, this is an Oscars where Fred Astaire is still there, still being... Fred Astaire, he gets invited to dance on stage by Bob Hope at this crazy award show where an X-rated movie is about to win Best Picture. And the music he's dancing to is such an... It's this moment of trying to be hip and figure out what the kids like. It's kind of strange. Listen to this music, and then I'll tell you what happens when he's done dancing. (laughs) 
This is insane. I mean, Fred Astaire is amazing, but this is on TV. This is nuts. It's, it's nuts. This generational smash-up of what is cool, you know, and he does this number. The Oscars cut to Jack Nicholson, like always. Yeah. They're already doing this in 1970. Something ends, cut to Jack Nicholson. And people applaud for Astaire, but nobody gives him a standing ovation because it's like he's the past. They're waiting for him to move on. He's right. not even considered. This is Easy Rider year, too. I mean, this yeah. is like, this is big. It's big. It's big. And watching him not get an, an ovation, I felt so torn. I'm like, that was a strange, weird, pandering moment. And yet it's a stare. Like, we're watching the past take its final bow here. Ugh. Out with the old, in with the new. Amy, if there's anybody who can go out with the old and in with the new, let's look at this transition I'm making. Was there a Simpsons? Sort of. This is from the episode Midnight Towboy, where Homer Simpson takes a job being a tow truck driver. This is him getting pitched the job. If you're interested, we could use another hook jockey. The Springfield territory is wide open since flatbed Fred got killed in that murder, 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 suicide. I would love to. Now just remember two rules. One, stick to Springfield. If I catch you on my turf, I'll rip off your head, vomit down your neck, pull out your heart, show it to your head, then shove them both down your neck hole, to which I previously alluded. Which I previously alluded. Are there two L's in alluded? Rule number two. Always keep your hook pointed out. Why? What happens if I point it this way? Oh, hello. Hello. Hello, Captain Hook. Oh, spoil sport. Oh, you're no fun. Uh, yeah, that happened. Whoa. So there's not too much of a Midnight Cowboy illusion, but I was like, I'm going to think that that is them also taking the title uh, and adding an extra elbow. That's a weird, I don't even... Yeah, this is a very weird episode. How to get into that. We have no limited time to go further into that one, Amy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I just report the facts on that one. Um, okay, Amy, what do you think? Does it belong on the list? Absolutely. I yeah. would get rid of a lot of 70s and late 60s stuff for this one. You know, I... Was, I, I find it redundant, given that we have everything amazing in Midnight Cowboy. I, I, I found it this movie to be incredibly dark and depressing and I also found it to be incredibly inspiring with the way it was filmed and and this conversation uh, and kind of contextualizing even more I think moved me from a maybe to a definite and I think the reason why it was a maybe at first was it has a lot of great firsts and there's a lot of great things in it Um, but I, I I couldn't. It was my first time really watching it, but in this conversation, I I think there's no doubt in my mind this belongs on the list. You know, there are parts that I felt maybe had dragged when I watched it, but there's also parts that really made me genuinely uncomfortable too. And I, and I find that's always a good sign of a film when it can kind of bring you to a dark spot and to get affected in those ways too. So I I uh, a little on the fence when we started it. Now I'm fully on board. I think it belongs on the list. Yeah, I mean, I feel like this is a film that was groundbreaking, and we don't have to just say it belongs to be, it belongs on the list because it did a thing that was great in the context of the time. Like, mm-hmm. I think this movie still really holds up as being watchable, well, compelling. Yeah, I agree. And I think what the issue that I'm having with it is, after watching so many films from this era, it does start to feel like it's like what came first, you know? And it's like, this has done a lot of what we've seen before better. And uh, And I also feel like, this film, the reason why it's on this list, I'm curious to see where it stays because it's not as much in the in the pop culture lexicon. I think there are elements, but I think it is fading. I think this is a movie that influenced a lot of filmmakers uh, in the 70s and 80s. And I wonder where this film goes if it keeps on moving down the list. And I bet you on the next list it will go down. And I think it will go down because it's not seen as much as other films. 
Yeah, and, and that's a bummer to me because I think it does need to be seen a little bit more. I agree with that. I mean, like, Joan Crawford stuck up for this movie. Like, actually, classic Hollywood really did. Gregory Peck, yeah. they all knew that this was something special. They didn't Gene even need Kelly to stick up for it. It, it, it. it was made a ton of money. Everyone's in. Exactly, exactly. And so I would like this movie, I think, to be more firmer engraved in the pantheon all right. of excellent films. I'll take it. All right, well, Amy, you know where we're going next week? We're going to The Perfect Companion of Midnight Cowboy. It's another story about a cowboy and his his unlikely friend. That's right. It's a duo. They don't live in a, in a seedy apartment, but they live in a house that's getting ready to be packed up and moved away from. That's right. I'm talking about Woody. I'm talking about Buzz. And I'm talking about a little movie called Toy Story. Yeehaw. Yeehaw, indeed. <laughs> okay, so Buzz Lightyear has his famous catchphrase, to infinity and beyond. Mm-hmm. But I feel like Woody's catchphrases don't really hold up. I think he needs a new one. What do you think? I definitely agree. I mean, we just can't have there's a rattlesnake in my boot forever. So why don't you call us with a new Woody catchphrase? Uh, Leave it on the unspooled voicemail at 747-666-5824. That's 747-666-5824. Give us a new catchphrase for Woody. Give him something new to say. And if you can do it in your best uh, Tom Hanks Woody voice, we will take it. All right, Amy, we will see you next week for... Toy Story. Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.